Welcome to EMS, History, Myth, and Media podcast. I'm very pleased that you've chosen to listen to my stories about EMS and emergency medicine. This episode is the first about some of the myths about EMS. Many are falsehoods propagated by movies and TV, and some are things patients believe and so fall into the realm of urban myths. Please stay tuned and let's cover some of the beliefs that people have which are very commonly held about EMS but unfortunately just aren't true. If you haven't listened to earlier episodes, or if you don't remember, let me tell you a little about myself. I wanted to be a doctor from the age of six. Graduating from medical school in 1980, I did a residency in family practice, which is now called family medicine. The specialty of family practice was just over 10 years old at that time, and emergency medicine was even newer, at first under surgery and later as its own specialty. The American Board of Medical Specialties recognized emergency medicine in 1978, two years before I graduated and started my residency. I fully expected that after residency I would join some group family practice and work both in an office and taking care of our patients in the hospital. Every resident in their first year does a month in the emergency department. During medical school, I had enjoyed my time in the emergency department, and during my month in the department as a resident, it occurred to me that this was exactly what I had always thought being a doctor was about, taking care of people in their time of greatest need, regardless of their age, sex, or the nature of their problem. At that point, almost no doctors working in emergency departments in the United States had done a residency in emergency medicine, it being so new, so that was not a requirement for employment. After my residency finished, I started working solely in emergency departments. I started in 1983, and except for a year trying out family practice uh, with a partner, and sometime in urgent care clinics later, I had returned to hospital-based emergency medicine practice after doing urgent care, and I did that until I retired from it in 2017. I truly loved being an emergency physician. Now, one of the dullest classes in medical school was the history of medicine. As time went on, the history of medicine became somewhat more fascinating to me. This podcast about the history of EMS and emergency medicine is a result of that fascination with the history of medicine. As earlier episodes have recounted, I'm old enough to have lived through the emergence of EMS and emergency medicine in their current forms in America. As I'm approaching the age of 70, this history includes a lot of stuff I can personally recall. One of the other fascinating things to me, besides EMS history, is that there are some myths that persist about emergency medicine. You can listen to some earlier podcast episodes on this podcast about TV shows covering emergency medicine or EMS. In TV shows and movies, some inaccuracies have been a vital part of those representations, like police procedural shows which make us all absolutely sure that policemen are more accurate shooting pistols on the run than snipers are with rifles stationary on a rooftop, there are things the writers consistently put into medical shows which people believe by the repeated telling of the myth. Speaking of guns, one of the biggest myths commonly portrayed in shows or movies concerns police coming into the ER with a shooting victim. Either on the scene a paramedic will say, or at the hospital a doctor will tell the police something like, well, it looks like he was shot by a thirty-two caliber pistol. 
What a myth. Guessing the caliber of the bullet from looking at the wound on the victim is grossly inaccurate. Sure, I could tell you the difference between shotgun wounds and single bullet wounds, but I certainly couldn't distinguish whether a bullet came from a handgun or a rifle. This is consistently put forth as something we all can do. It's crucial to the plot that we can quickly answer this question so that the police can go out and find that 32 caliber pistol in the perpetrator's car and close the case. Even distinguishing between entrance and exit wounds can be tricky unless the paramedic or doctor have actually been taught the detailed characteristics. And identifying a wound as an entrance or an exit is not really necessary to do the procedures to save the patient or treat the gunshot victim. What other myths are out there in movies and TV? Well, how about all the shouting and running in the emergency department? Those of us who work there at any length of time will tell you that shouting and running around confuses the situation and exposes everyone to unnecessary risk. We think better and make better decisions if we remain calm, if we do things in a somewhat regimented way, following algorithms to assure that we do what is best in a sequence of actions and not leave anything out. Although it's part of the dialogue in nearly all representations of emergency situations, I cannot recall in over 30 years working in emergency departments ever hearing anyone shout, we're losing him, during a resuscitation attempt. All of the professionals in the room are well aware of whether the efforts are working or not, and no one needs to shout, and no one needs to point out that the patient's doing poorly. I'll admit that I have occasionally muttered under my breath, come on, come on, after defibrillating a patient and watching the monitor to see if the normal electrical activity returns to the heart. Although it makes for good drama, and writers like to include it in the scene because they've seen it so many times in shows or movies that they've watched, it just doesn't really happen that way in real life. A nurse with whom I worked for years once mentioned that during cardiac arrests, I spoke more quietly than usual. I told her I did that on purpose. It made everyone else get quieter and concentrate on what was happening and thus make the right choices in what we did and give the patient the best chance of survival. I tell people that I don't make good decisions with wet pants. Back in the old days, except in some teaching hospitals, there weren't cardiac catheterization suites ready to quickly open coronary arteries in people having myocardial infarctions, heart attacks. We managed those cases by giving medications, the biggest gun of which were thrombolytics, the clot-dissolving drugs, to open the arteries back up. Once in the 90s, about 45 minutes into treating a man, who was doing well, by the way, we'd given him a few medications, we had him on an IV drip of nitroglycerin, and the wife at the bedside asked me, are you telling us he's having a heart attack? I told her, yes, that was exactly what was happening, and I also kicked myself inside for not being clear. I'd explained to the patient and to her as we went along that we were working on restoring circulation to the heart muscle by dissolving clot in the artery and opening it up again, but apparently I had not used the words heart attack. So then she said, well, I don't mean to be impertinent, but shouldn't you be doing something? I told her that unlike TV shows where they shout and run, we do this every day. We know exactly what we're doing, and the team calmly and efficiently works together. I explained that it 
except for taking him to a cath lab, which we didn't have at that time, or taking him to the operating room for emergency bypass surgery, which we almost never did, we'd already done everything. It just wasn't very exciting or dramatic like she had been seeing on TV shows. In an earlier episode of this podcast, I called that one, Is the Scene Safe? I mentioned something that is fraught with myth. I spoke of the critical point in EMS, protecting the public and the EMS squad from injury or death at the scene. If on arrival at the scene, danger is apparent, squad members are taught to secure the scene first to eliminate obvious immediate danger and then to attend to people who are ill or injured. I lectured EMS personnel for years and it, that it never improves the situation to add more victims especially if the new victims are people who showed up to help. One of the things commonly seen in movies or TV shows, however, is that emergency medical workers rush into burning buildings or dodge bullets to get to a person in need of help. In the shows, the rescuers always seem to pull it off. They get to the injured patient and the patients are saved by their efforts. This doesn't happen much. EMS squads know that firemen are better equipped to deal with the fire, and police are the ones to handle the gunfight situations. Once the firemen bring the people out, or the police have done whatever was necessary to stop the rain of bullets, then the EMTs and paramedics can tend to the victims. There is already risk to EMTs and paramedics. Many are injured or suffer work-related muscle or joint problems from the heavy lifting and getting people extricated or even just transferred from where they are to the ambulance and then to the hospital. Tragically, some EMS workers die on the job, most commonly being because of crashes of ambulances or aircraft. There's been ongoing debate in EMS literature and EMS policy meetings about whether ambulances speeding with lights flashing and sirens sounding actually improves the outcome enough for patients to warrant the risk that it imposes on the workers inside the ambulance with the patient. The couple of minutes reduction in transport time makes very little difference in the vast majority of cases, especially if the patient is not in a cardiopulmonary arrest situation. Yet, because of the dramatic effect, fictional representations of ambulances frequently have them careening around corners with their lights and sirens blaring. Another set of myths involves the dramatic improvement patients appear to have from what we do for them. A common scene shows some emergency worker pushing a drug and then the patient immediately responds. Now, there are a few situations where this actually happens. Giving a patient with critically low blood sugar some intravenous glucose improves their status in seconds or, or at most minutes. They quickly awake or they begin thinking and reacting more normally. Pushing naloxone in an opioid overdose patient makes them start breathing and they awake, often quite upset and cursing that you've made them immediately feel like they're in withdrawal, like instead of being under the influence of the drug they took, but they are breathing again. A lot of the drugs we give have much more subtle and thus less dramatic onset. Many don't have any obvious effects while the patient's there in front of us. Now, I can attest that one of the reasons I loved being an emergency doctor and still believe that it's one of the greatest jobs on the planet is that many of the things I did made a difference while the patient was right there in front of me. 
Putting a chest tube into someone to re-expand a collapsed lung immediately makes them breathe better. Manipulating a dislocation to put the bone back into its joint socket is profoundly satisfying. Even incising an abscess and watching the pus flow out was gratifying. I just knew that the patient was going to get better. I'll confess that I occasionally said at the end of a shift that it was a good shift because I got to lance a boil. However, on TV shows and movies, it seems that every single intervention we do has that dramatic and immediate effect. The majority of cases out of the approximately 150,000 charts I signed between my personal cases and the ones I supervised were quite subtle and would not make very good drama on the screen. EMS work and emergency department practice is usually case after case of routine. We make the assessment, we try to figure out what's going wrong, and we decide whether some immediate action is required, but often it's just gently trying to steer the situation away from getting worse into one of getting back to normal. I used to tell people that my job entailed imposing order onto chaos, just doing what I could to make things normal again. The really dramatic cases where we did get to see an immediate effect is the reward we got from handling all of the less exciting cases. Watching the representation on the screen of what I did can be unsettling because I see things I just cannot accept. Watching a show centered on emergency medicine with my wife once, the patient was exhibiting stroke symptoms. He made nonsense sounds trying to talk and he was not moving his right arm. And the attending doctor, standing there with medical students around him, asked what was going on. And one of the students replied that the patient appeared to be having a stroke, probably from a blood clot blocking an artery to his brain. The professor told him, yes, that's correct. Now what do we do? And another student suggested giving a thrombolytic drug to dissolve the clot. The professor congratulated her on that answer and turned, and of course there was a syringe with a magic clot-busting drug there ready to be administered. I turned to my wife at this point and said, if this patient immediately begins talking, I'm never watching this show again because that's not how this works. Of course, the medication had barely left the syringe into the IV tubing, and the patient turned to his wife and said, I love you. Well, I left the room and I never watched that show again, but it did last for three seasons. Something many patients believe is we do have quick answers to perplexing problems or that we have one of those immediate antidotes on hand to reverse the problem, like that naloxone to reverse opioids or the glucose to awaken the hypoglycemic diabetic. I've had patients tell me that they're in my emergency department for a problem that they've had for some long period of time, They've been to their doctor multiple times for the problem. They've been to specialists and even to a couple of major medical centers seeking a diagnosis and treatment without any resolution of their symptoms. Immediately, I wonder if they expect us in a couple of hours in the ER to say, oh, well, what you have is Globner's disease and we have an IV bag full of cure right here ready to fix you. I realize that Comfort and understanding are at times the only thing I have to offer. I had one, one, one woman come in saying that she was certain that her health problems were the result of exposure to black mold in her apartment and that she heard that we could give her an IV that would get rid of those effects. The only thing besides comforting her which I could offer was to advise her that I knew of no such IV which reversed the effects of black mold exposure 
and that she should probably talk to her landlord about getting rid of the mold if she could see it. Well, in this episode, I've covered a few of the myths which have haunted us in EMS and emergency medicine. As I've said, some of these which appear and show are kind of like memes which keep popping up because they're dramatic. Writers keep using them because they quickly represent our profession in ways that the audience expects. It's apparently much more effective a representation of a critical situation for me to yell, we're losing him and come on, breathe at the patient than to quickly give them the best chance of survival and recovery and be quiet about it while I'm doing it. I'm sorry to tell you that I never told a coworker to do anything stat. It was kind of understood that we were the emergency department. Emergency is kind of the name of the department and it was to be assumed that everything we did was stat. Well, anyway, that concludes this episode of my podcast, EMS, History, Myth, and Media. There are several other myths and misconceptions which plague our profession, and I will probably do more episodes exposing those. For now, though, thanks again for listening, and especially thanks to all the EMTs, paramedics, nurses, doctors, and advanced practice providers involved in EMS and emergency care. I hope if you have an interest in these topics, that you listen to other episodes of this podcast. I enjoy producing them and hope that you enjoy listening and maybe learn a little. So until next time, 